0: Hey, have you got your tickets for Dial of Destiny yet, Noel? Dial of Destiny. Is that, uh... Indiana Jones is the fucking opening next week. Is the new Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, Did you not know that this existed? Well, I knew they were making another one. I just didn't realize it was coming out that soon. Well, I mean, they have to put it out soon. They can't wait much longer. Harrison Ford's going to be fucking dead. Well, aren't they handing the reins over to Shia LaBeouf? Is that, uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> That's not what's not. happening here? Oh, man. Um... You know what? We're going to talk all about it here. Uh, I think my opinion on it might surprise you a little, though. On Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm not ready for this, man. It's too early in the morning. (laughs) Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. (laughs) And I'm Nolan. And it is our 100th episode and season finale. (laughs) Woo! 100 episodes. Yes. Yes. It's very exciting. (laughs) Uh, And we decided that we needed to go with a big huge movie, not just a giant epic failure, which, I mean, I thought we kind of both thought this was, but now you've got me nervous, but also something relevant and topical because, yes, next week, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth and God-willing last Indiana Jones movie, (laughs) is going to hit theaters like 15 years after this one, which sure seemed like a farewell back then. Yeah, I mean... It did seem like they were paying homage to the fans of the first one all throughout this thing, and we're going to get into the details, but it definitely was one of those where they were trying to pay tribute to those moments, bring back characters. The ending of it makes you think that maybe they're trying to toss the hat a little bit, but we can get to that when we get there. We sure will, but before we do, as we always do for 99 episodes previous to this one, plus some bonus episodes, I've heard of those bonus episodes, they don't really count though, right? Anyway, (laughs) we always pair a beer with the movie we are watching. And uh, although we had batted around the idea of having some of Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Skull Vodka, we both decided that was a terrible idea. So uh, we've got a beer today. What is it? Yeah, Crystal Skull, um, although a very cool bottle, is a, like, terrible vodka. Go figure. A vodka made by Dan Aykroyd? <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine why that wouldn't be good. Yeah, so we weren't into that. But we do have a sweet beer here. It's called Skull Rock, and it has a like awesome picture of a skull... Made out of rock on here. Very reminiscent of some of those cave drawings we see in this movie. I yeah, feel. it actually fits. It's a giant skull that is made out of rock that leads them to that cave in the underground city in this thing. So it fits really, really well. I think sort of slam dunk connection here. This is from the Sleeping Giant Brewing Company. I haven't had any of their beers before, so I'm excited to try this. They're at a Thunder Bay, Ontario. If you're not not familiar with Canadian geography, it's uh, right on the edge of Lake Superior. And there's actually a provincial park named the Sleeping Giant. There's a huge rock formation there that looks like a giant laying down and having a nap. So... Uh, That's sort of where the inspiration of the company comes from. So I'm excited to try this. They have a huge selection of stuff on there. I think they've been making beers for about 10 years and uh, it sounds like they've got some really cool stuff, so I'm excited to get into this. This looks like it's a, a stout, so we got an oatmeal stout here. Again, not really stout weather, but we're just doing it. Yeah, it's morning, though, so stouts are kind of like a breakfast beer. Oatmeal, too. Yeah, oatmeal's a breakfast food. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. This is made from six different malts, so we got a, oh. a mix of different malts here to add some really depth of flavor. I'm betting it's going to be a little sweet, a little chocolatey. It should be pretty tasty. I just went from 10 to midnight. <laughs> not midnight to 10. No, <laughs> oh, I love malts. Are you kidding me? I'm very excited to try this. Let's get into it. So after the once exciting Lucasfilm logo, everyone seeing the Lucasfilm logo used to mean you were in for a good time. I do. <laughs> the, uh, the Paramount logo dissolves into a groundhog hill, which a groundhog pops out of as Elvis Presley's hound dog starts playing. And we are just immediately in trouble here. <laughs> oh, man. So... This is from 2008, right? So we're late 2000s. This is after we've had the Star Wars movies make their appearance. The prequels? Yeah. With George Lucas. uh, Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So this has got George Lucas's DNA all over it. Yeah, it definitely feels like 2000s Lucas right away. Um, I like Hound Dog bursting in here. We've got a car flying, kind of good energy. Then we get just some horrible CG groundhogs, though, and this is well, I was starts us off say, right did, here. Did, you may like the song, but did you need the CGI groundhog heralding its arrival? No, and it, it has or takes on those sort of human-like qualities that it wouldn't in real life. That is definitely a Lucas thing, right? This is that feeling we're getting from all of those 2000s movies that he created. All of this, this car full of teenagers, like, racing these army trucks is so obviously CGI at several points. And that totally fits what we're going to see in the rest of this movie. They could have called this Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Computer-Generated Imagery, and nobody would have batted an eye. <laughs> Seriously, that's all we get. And you're going to have a major problem with all of that, I agree. I do. It's, yes. it's <laughs> it was not immediately apparent. And it wasn't just me, not just me for the record. <laughs> you were alive when this came out, just widely denounced. And all of this doesn't help. I saw this in theater, and this... Watching it again, it's actually only the second time I've ever seen it. So uh, that that will sort of tell you how I felt about it after watching it the first time. Yeah, no, same with me. Uh, Anyway, it turns out these U.S. Army soldiers they're trying to race aren't actually U.S. Army soldiers at all. They're Russians. Or so we find out when a certain fedora-wearing adventurer gets dragged out of their trunk. It's Indiana Jones's grandfather, I think. Is this a prequel? <laughs> Harrison Ford is looking a little long in the tooth, but it's still Harrison. He still has that scar. and I mean, he was a little bit older when he became famous as an actor, right? So he's definitely getting on in the years here. I don't know, what, 90s, we think? But, uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he's in his 70s probably yeah. when he's making this, right? Uh, I, I think, like, late 60s. Now, I will give them credit. They steer into the old age thing immediately. This ain't going to be easy. Not as easy as it used to be. Well, we've been through worse. Yeah? When? Flensburg, There was twice as many. We were younger. I still am young. But all I could think of is, it's 15 years later and they're about to put out this sequel. If they're making old age jokes in this one, what the fuck are they going to do in Dial of Destiny? Yeah, he actually is 90 while he's making that one, right? He's 80. He's 80 years old. Okay, there you go. So... (laughs) It's going to be interesting to see that new one, to see how it's going. I wonder if he is going to play more of the Sean Connery role from the earlier movies and someone else is going to take on that adventuring, or do you think he's still going to be trying to pull it off like he does in this one? Well, they're de-aging him, aren't they? Oh, there, are there, they? There's footage where they de-age him with the technology now to make him look like young Harrison Ford. Oh, so he is going to be starring in this movie. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Or maybe not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, it turns out these Russian soldiers are breaking into a top-secret military base hoping to retrieve a mysterious item from one of the many, many wooden crates marked top-secret. Now, eagle-eyed Indiana Jones fans will recognize this is the top-secret base where the U.S. government put the Ark of the Covenant after assuring Indy that it was going to be studied by top men. I'm kidding about the eagle-eyed part. They make this extremely obvious. So it will be the first, but not last, bit of heavy-handed fan service. Yeah, this a lot of this movie is trying to sort of give that sense, to. It made me think a little bit about the most recent series of Star Wars movies and the first of that set doing that, right? Like, all of it is kind of throwing back to the originals and trying to make fans enjoy it. And there are aspects of that that I did enjoy in this movie. I, I it, It's heavy-handed, but I do like the feelings that it brings back. It doesn't go quite how I'd hoped it would, I guess, as a (laughs) as a Indiana Jones film. But I I don't dislike that as a way to um, sort of give the audience what they're looking for. I mean, I feel like at this point you basically have to, because if you don't, you'll just be crucified online. But at the same time, if you go too hard, but they're just slapping you in the face with it here. And it's just I don't know. I find it very cringeworthy. Uh, We also meet our big bad here. That's Kate Blanchett inexplicably playing a Ukrainian army scientist who is also uh, psychic. What the fuck? Yeah, I mean, she, I think she studies the psychic arts. We're getting into, this all takes place in the 50s? Or it's supposed to take place in the 50s? Oh, no, it must be like the 60s, right? I don't or know. maybe, so, I don't know, when did Hound Dog come out? Maybe I mean, it's the 50s, 50s, early 60s, who the fuck knows? Yeah, so it's supposed to be taking place in the past, and we are kind of following up from some of the science that was done during the World Wars that, when we look back on now, is certainly, like, cringeworthy and and not something that... That's putting it mildly. Yeah, Yeah. like, there's some devious science that was going on at the time, and this is her kind of extending that into the psychic realm, right? She's looking for objects that can allow her to take control of the mind of her enemies, and she thinks that Indy is the key to finding some of those objects. His experience in finding all of those ancient and sacred things are going to be what she needs to Get control here. Well, and of course, uh, he is exactly that. He is the person that can lead her to it. So not only do we have alleged psychics running around, but as we see once she forces him to find the crate she's looking for, the mysterious item she's hoping to retrieve is the mummified remains of an alien. A fucking alien. So I guess just forget what I said about fan (laughs) service. Who wanted this? (laughs) Yeah, so the alien part of this movie is interesting, and it takes a fairly prominent role in the script. There's a lot of people who were interested in that kind of idea or still are interested in in the Indiana Jones world, though. I guess but how far a leap is it from some of the other things that were happening in the previous movies to him finding evidence of aliens okay perhaps that is not a giant leap but we get some very giant leaps at the end of this movie so I'm just gonna leave that there for now (laughs) there's a difference between finding evidence that aliens had once visited earth and the fucking CGI shit show we get at the end of this all right all right (laughs) Uh, anyway uh, Indy's friend who we've never met or heard of before but Betrays him, what a shocker. And now he's going to have to maneuver his way out of there, which he does by dropping his gun, which shoots the guy who betrayed him in the foot, which causes him to start shooting wildly along with all the Russian troops. Indiana Jones is able to escape despite basically an entire battalion shooting at him with machine guns. But if you think that's wildly implausible and unrealistic, just wait till you see what happens next. Oh my gosh, this escape scene in the giant warehouse is pretty fucking hilarious. I mean, this is the kind of silly action that does take place in the Indiana Jones movies, though. This doesn't feel off-brand. It feels off-brand for his age because he's running across beams uh, above. Well, he's running. Yeah, that's true. It's the CG Harrison Ford that's doing the running. Yeah, so the... The character itself is pulling off some shit that he shouldn't be able to, but that's always kind of been the way. He crashes down through a glass window while battling with a large Russian guy who we've kind of seen throughout here. He's kind of pictured as the Bond villain esque big bad that he's fighting. He's not the big bad; he's the main henchman. Yes, yeah, yeah be, the, the big the, bad he is the Jaws Kate to Kate Blanchett's, yeah, uh, yes. you know, uh, Drax or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So he's he's fighting this guy, and they're they're punching each other and battling it out. They crash through a window, and they end up. On some kind of what looks like rocket sled. It's like a rocket engine. I think it's not a platform. It's like strapped down to a platform but this activates after he fucking parkours his way through this warehouse like a goddamn American Ninja Warrior and then (laughs) defeats this trained soldier who's at least 30 years his junior in hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, this rocket engine thing flares up and it like launches them out of there. Now, I especially like the part when a whole pack of those CGI groundhogs watched him shoot by. Did George Lucas direct this? Like, honestly, I thought it was Spielberg. George, you take this scene. Yeah, I mean, George and Steve are known to work together pretty closely and you can tell where George had some influence i did write in my notes why the bad gopher cg like it was completely yeah. unnecessary yeah i guess they're trying to bring some kind of levity to it here but i would have it rather happened through the like traditional silly indie joke kind of stuff like that's yeah, kind meaningful of meaningful dialogue based yes. on like well-developed characters that kind of thing yeah that yeah. that is usually how it happens this like sneaking in of the cg gophers was not necessary Um, They go to the end of this thing and they're both kind of struggling because they weren't strapped down and flew on a rocket ship thing uh, across the desert. (laughs) Somehow Indy shakes it off a little bit faster Uh. and runs into the desert to escape the chasing Russians. Yeah, he's desperate to get away and alert the U.S. military to what's happened at the base, and luckily he finds what seems to be your standard American town. He runs into one of the houses to try to call for help, only it's not a real house, and that's not a real town. What he has walked into is a model town smack dab in the middle of an atomic bomb testing site. Not only that, they are just about to run a test. And so here, 20 minutes into this movie, we reach the point where this thing completely abandons any pretense of realism or credibility. Why don't you explain how he gets out of this one? Because if I try, I'm just going to start shouting. <laughs> 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 oh, God. Yeah, this goes too far. Um, the Him finding the town in the middle of the desert um, and him realizing it's a nuclear test center is pretty funny. The Russians, some of them are there chasing him. They speed off in their car trying to outrace the bomb that's coming. But there's a countdown going, and he only has seconds to find a safe space. And what he does is he runs into one of these homes, and he finds an old-school fridge. He pulls out all the drawers and stuff and throws himself inside. They're very careful to show you that it is a lead-line fridge. They, They zoom in on that. And then the bomb hits, and we get a pretty cool effect of the air and space moving through as the town is destroyed. What is not pretty cool is the fact that the fridge flies like several kilometers or miles, bounces at least 50 times, and Harrison Ford inside opens the door and walks out basically unscathed. Yeah, so I'm going to try and control myself here. Because they do try to explain this away by showing us the fridge is lead lined. But at that point, the fact that it could theoretically survive the blast and or ensuing radiation doesn't matter. Because like you said, getting launched several miles of the air and crashing down to the ground multiple times would have shattered every bone in his body. Just obliterated. If you opened that fridge, a fucking liquid would pour out with a fedora floating on top of it. Zero percent survival (laughs) rate. And he fucking walks away from it. Um, Well, sorry, I should clarify. He walks away from it and towards the still visible mushroom cloud. So he should also absolutely die from the radiation. But instead of just hose him off and stick him in an FBI debriefing before I get some fucking backstory. Yeah, that was a push a little too far. Oh, a little, a little too far. That was a push a little too far. I agree he would have been liquefied. I agree he would have died from the uh, exposure to the radiation. The fact that they transitioned to him just getting scrubbed off with soap and him being fine is a lot to handle. Uh, But if you can, if you can, like, remember it's a movie and not hold that sort of, like, realism expectation here. I mean, there's stuff in the other ones that aren't real, too, that help no, with the adventure. But no, no, no. That's my problem with this. And I'll get to this in my rating at the end. But because of the era they were made, all of the effects were actually done by a human. Mm-hmm. The things were happening in a real space. The fucking CG that allows Spielberg and Lucas to do this while they fucking off at the dailies is, like, it's, it's the whole problem here. It's the, this yeah. movie encapsulates what I hate most about CGI. And this scene is the most egregious example,
1: <laughs> but it's not the last example.
0: There will be more. Um, I I agree. It's the most egregious example. I remembered it being bad, and it was really, really bad. Um, it looked very real. Just the 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 fact what? of him what the The town being destroyed oh, yeah, sorry. And, uh, yes, like that part the, yes. that all looked very good and real. and they didn't have to explode an atomic bomb to make that, which is obviously yeah. wonderful. Um the <laughs> fact that he he wasn't a melted pile of goo is absolute bullshit. and I agree with that. This was my problem with the movie too, right? This was George and Steven in the 2000s fucking with franchises because they now had new computer stuff they could do. That's right. And and that was difficult, right? Especially because the other previous movies in those franchises were so revered, so well done. If you hadn't have seen those previous ones or maybe we'll get to this a little bit later like if this was the first Indiana Jones movie you'd seen you'd never seen any of the others I don't think you'd be as upset at what it was oh you know what I I will agree that's a good point I wonder how like if kids saw this one first I think they would. Yeah, I think they would like it. But they're used to this nonsense. I know, but that's what I mean. Like, I think I think that. So I'm I'm the old man yelling at cloud. Yeah, absolutely. In in some ways, you are, and Uh, we we can talk more at the end. But I think that is. He's not a fucking superhero. He's a human guy. You can't survive that. All right, whatever. Well, he did survive the Russians and that nuclear blast, but he couldn't survive the cover-your-ass mentality of academic bureaucracy, as the next time we see Indiana Jones, he's getting shit-canned from his job as a professor. His boss is resigning in protest, and the two of them complain about oppressive government control and a conversation that must have made your nipples hard. I'll wire you when I get settled. You can send on the rest of my things. I suppose there's nothing to keep you here. I barely recognize this country anymore. The government's got us seeing communists in our soup. When the hysteria reaches academia and I guess it's time to call it a career. Admit it, you love shit like this. Well, it was straight McCarthyism, right? Yeah. Like this was this right was them rally. getting accused of being involved in communist stuff, despite the fact that they were fighting against it. Um and this this was a pretty drastic time in US politics, right? So yeah, for sure, this was I was like, okay. This is, I like the the conversation that's happening here. They're showing some of what was wrong with that time period. Yeah, our listeners can't see this right now, but your erection is so big it's tilting the table towards me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, well, no, so he gets fired from his job, so he's not going to be any, there anymore. And like you said, his friend, old friend, and Dean quits too. So where are they going to go next? What can he do? Well, Europe is going to be the destination by way of New York, but Indiana Jones won't be alone. A couple of thugs jump on the same train as him, but before we can see how that plays out, Shia LaBeouf appears through the smoke, dressed like the biker from the village people, riding his motorcycle onto the train platform and yelling at Dr. Jones about an old archaeologist who someone is going to kill. And why are they going to kill this Dr. Oxley? Because he found a crystal skull, one of several on Earth, according to Indiana Jones, and also the lost city of Akatar. But you may know it by its other name, El Dorado, the city of gold. How judgmental were people of Shia being the like young character in this? So as I recall, this was before most of his problems, so I think he had a couple of issues. But I think the thing people resented was... It seemed like Steven Spielberg especially was trying to like force him down everyone's throat. Like Spielberg was like, this is going to be the next big movie star. And people weren't necessarily on board, but he just kept trotting him out there. So I think that was kind of, it was like a resentment of like being told you're supposed to like this guy. I do remember some hostility at the time towards him. I also remember at the time not being a huge fan, but he grew on me later. What's funny is once he kind of went off the deep end a little, I started liking him more. Yeah, he became yeah. hilarious. When he was getting in, like, drunken bar fights and stuff. Like, oh, this guy's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he, oh, he says more about me. That does it doesn't about him, though. When he does that, like, Shia LaBeouf skit thing, it's amazing. The, yeah. uh That performance by that, I don't know, like, that men's choir, and then yeah. he shows up in the audience. It's absolutely fucking fantastic. I don't know, man. Uh, your mileage may vary with him, but he is in this very much. Hey, I almost forgot to mention that Shia LaBeouf's character, by the way, his name is Mutt. He was sent to find Indiana Jones by his mother, a lady named Marion who said Indy would definitely help him if he dropped her name. He also mentions how his dad died in the war. And if you can't see where this is going, I don't know what to tell you. Spielberg and Lucas, masters of subtlety. Yeah, we need to have Indy Jr. here. We know that they want to continue this story along. So we we kind of have a sense of where this is going right away. Having seen it once, obviously, I know it's his son. But even if you're watching it for the first time, you know it's they're laying son. this out yeah. for you. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're making it really clear. But this has never been a movie where they're trying to make you figure out things, right? Like everything's always been laid on the table and it moves pretty quickly. This is more about pace and action and that rather than like suspense and intrigue. I guess, this just felt like more of that rampant fan service to me and I, it, like kind of pushed me out of this even more than I already was. Uh, turns out those two goons also got off the train and once they confirm that Shia LaBeouf had the letter he gives to Indiana Jones, they move in to grab it as well as the two of them. LaBeouf, young hothead that he is, tries to fire up on them but Indy knows that isn't going to work out. We don't ask again, come now, or what? Nice try kid, but I think you just brought a knife to a gunfight. So instead, LaBeouf starts a fight between some jocks and greasers so they can get out to the diner and they start a fairly tepid car chase filled with more fan service and a big moment at the end where they ride Mutt's motorcycle through the library. I actually enjoy that moment where they start the fight between the greasers and the jocks. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I enjoyed in the diner. that too. Uh, the throwback, the music going on. The car chase, the motorcycle versus car chase is, is a little bit pedestrian, but it is kind of fun moving through the university grounds. It's a nice place. It reminds me of some of the old universities we have here in Ontario, and I enjoyed that it ended up in that library, and we have a little joke where after sliding underneath some tables, a student or an ex-student of Harry Harrison Ford's uh, asked him a question as he's like getting off of this falling motorcycle. And he tells him that real art you need to get out of the library, real archaeologists need to be in the field. As he's riding off on a motorcycle. So I like, whatever. I guess that's kind of a cute moment. Time to dissect that letter now, and I have to say, I really wish I had timed how long it takes Nick Cage to crack the code in National Treasure 2, because this could be like a 1A, 1B situation, you know? He busts this thing wide open at near record time, and they're off to Peru. I laughed my ass off at how fast he figured it out, too. Yeah, yeah I had the exact same connections. Um, I thought it was bullshit. He, he technically only figures out the first clue, though, so at least he doesn't have this whole thing figured out. He just knows where he needs to go next. This next section is another sort of hat nod to the fans of the series for sure when we get the plane and the map overlay that sort of moving on the map and I actually really really enjoy that transition scene so I don't know how you felt about it but it it's definitely made me, yeah yeah exactly yeah. and this nostalgia was working for me at this point. I do like that aspect of the indie films yeah this is probably the least offensive part of this movie in terms of comparison to the other ones I'll give you that. Now, they don't find Dr. Oxley at their first stop. What they do find is some demented carvings in a sanitarium, because I guess old Ox lost his marbles the second he got to Peru. It's mostly drawings of skulls and the word return written in different languages. And with precious little else to go on, Indy reaches the only logical conclusion, that Dr. Oxley discovered the final resting place of a legendary figure that no one had previously been able to find. Gee, I hope that resting place isn't guarded by a bunch of monkey men wearing skull masks... Oh yeah, it sort of fits with that skull rock beer we're drinking here, yeah. right? Like the the can art here. Um yeah, I didn't really understand why it was guarded by these sort of like they were almost like martial artists, uh indigenous monkey men. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they're they're whooping and making these like Kind of like Liu Kang sounds as they... And then we have them shooting poison darts and stuff. We're definitely getting some stereotypical indigenous portrayals in Oh, here. my God. Here it's, we go. It's Finally, we found be... something that bothers you about this movie. <laughs> it's supposed to be, like, in the 50s. So it's possible that indigenous communities were still, like, living outside of society in well, I was going to say, we meet point. one later. I That's know a, which yeah, yeah, and and it is possible at that time if they're guarding like a never found ancient civilization that you'd find people who were living that sort of lifestyle. Yeah. Well, after subduing these uh, guards, I guess you'd call them, Indian Shia LaBeouf enter a crypt, fraught with scorpions, secret passages And seven mummies, each containing a member of a legendary Conquistador's army. But inside the mummy of the Conquistador himself, something extremely magnetic, just like in the military base at the start of the movie. And in case there was any doubt, Harrison Ford digs through the mummy's wrappings, moves the Conquistador's body, and pulls out a fucking alien skull. Seriously, it's a fucking alien skull. And the Russians are waiting outside the crypt alongside Indy's friend who betrayed him to repossess it the minute he walks out of there. Yeah, that was unfortunate timing. This is kind of a plot in a lot of those adventure movies where, like, the smart adventurer goes and grabs the, like, important thing that they were searching for only to have it stolen by someone who has guns waiting outside of where they are. This, Yeah, Nick Cage leads Ed Harris right to that fucking thing. I'm yeah. telling you. <laughs> so that's a common trope, I think, in this style of film and or story. Um, so it's it's not great for them. They have found this discovery, this skull, but unfortunately it's going to be possessed by the Russians. They also capture Indy and Shia, and they want to find out some more about how this skull works. Oh, definitely. Yeah, with Indiana Jones captured, it's time for psychic Ukrainian Kate Blanchett to explain her master plan. It involves getting those alien skulls to Akatar in order to gain control over their powers, which she refers to as a mind weapon. Andy doesn't believe any of this, and why would he? None of this fits the world that's been built in the other three movies in this franchise, but he's whistling a different tune when she brings in a deranged Dr. Oxley to say hello, and he's really whistling a different tune after she makes him stare deep into the alien skull's eyes. How about this acting from Harrison Ford here? <laughs> he was pushing for, uh, I mean, maybe a Golden Globe here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not an Oscar. Not Oscar level, but he's trying to go for the Golden Globe. Um, yeah, it's interesting, right? So some reason, this skull has some kind of psychic power. If you stare into its eyes, it can communicate to you. And he goes through this sort of experience. They pull him away from it before it kills him or does too much or sort of dements him like the Oxley character in this. I think what we've determined is Oxley spent too much time staring into those skulls' eyes, which is why he kind of loses it here. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I do like how Indiana Jones essentially spoils the end of the movie by telling her to be careful what she wishes for when she's talking about the mind powers. Again, they are just laying it out here so obviously. And speaking of which, when Indy still refuses to get Dr. Oxley to lead the Russians to Akatar, Kate Blanchett brings out a familiar face. It's Mutt's mom, Marion, a.k.a. Karen Allen, a.k.a. Indy's old love interest, which of course means exactly what you think it does. And they quickly demonstrate they haven't lost any of the old spark that defined their relationship. You still leaving a trail of human wreckage, or have you retired? Why, you looking for a date? With anybody but you. Oh, yeah. I bet you could hang Indiana Jones' whip on his erection right here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's where he always held it. So, yeah, we know they're getting back together. We know that this is where this is headed. It, it kind of reminds, like, if we're looking at National Treasure, we're just like, holy fuck, yeah. same story, still. Oh they didn't the have, have a secret kid. Yeah, they didn't have a secret child that no. these two so clearly do now. That's true, yeah. yeah. That's the only difference here. Yep. Now, Dr. Oxley comes back to reality long enough to give Indy directions to Akatar, and it sure seems like the Russians are going to get what they're after, but just then, Shia LaBeouf jumps into action, punching a guard and smashing a lantern on the ground, which creates a diversion for them to escape. But they don't get far, as they run right into quicksand. Or dry sand, actually. Apparently there are key differences that Indy tries to explain before essentially being told to knock it off. I actually kind of enjoyed that. (laughs) like the fact that they run into it is silly um but the fact that he's explaining the difference as they're like sinking to their doom i I think was funny and inappropriate for the character of course to save them mutt runs and grabs a giant snake and we know how indy feels about snakes god yeah that was a tough part where he has to like close his eyes and pretend it's a rope because he's too scared to grab it and yeah yeah it was a bit much that one that one was certainly pandering that i think went a little too far um i know that you've Felt Almost all of the pandering has been too much in this one, but yeah. that, that one was a bit much for me. Um, So, of course, they also tell Oxley to go get them help, and who does Oxley go find to to help them <laughs> out of this situation? Well, he finds the closest people, which are, of course, the Russians, so they're captured again. We forgot to mention, too, this is where she reveals that uh, Idia Jones is, in fact, Shia LaBeouf's father. So if there was any doubt, it was exactly a twist yeah, at this point. She, she tells them because she thinks she's going to die in this slow sand or dry sand or whatever she calls it, Of course she doesn't, and now he knows that he's a father. He is instantly mad that Shia dropped out of school. Before he said it was fine, but now it's a problem because it's his own kid, which I actually thought was (laughs) kind of clever and fun. This is your best sequence for sure in this, eh? What, this section? In the movie, yeah. Uh, I do like this sequence. You seem very enamored with it. I do like it. Uh, I think it was stupid that they ended up in it, but I like the things that were revealed in that sequence for sure. Well, like we said, they are captured again. Uh, But of course, the Russians put them in a truck no one can see into with one inept guard. So Indiana Jones quickly takes control of that truck and starts taking out the Russian military convoy with his trademark bazooka. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) This whole sequence is a lot. Um, He is going to use this truck and jump from truck to truck and do all kinds of fighting. It actually felt like something out of Star Wars to me. Fe- Return of the Jedi. Yeah. The, yeah. The speeder scene in the it, forest. It kind of felt like a video game, too. Like Is that did- because everything was CGI? Nothing looked real? <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact that they were like hopping from like vehicle to vehicle, having hand to hand fight, shooting guns, using sabers. They were like, it was pretty ridiculous the way that the action happened. It was engaging and entertaining, though, right? Like it was enough that it pulled you in. I kind of like it, but it didn't feel real. Like like you said, this all goes too far, and in this section, it really felt like a video game or something that wasn't real to me. Wait, are you telling me that Shia LaBeouf doing the splits between two trucks while fencing a uh, psychic Kate Blanchett doesn't sound real? It's classic <laughs> Indiana Jones stuff, man. Come on. This... Uh... <laughs> This all ends with the uh, third most egregious and totally unbelievable moment of this movie where Shia LaBeouf, taking his cue from a group of monkeys he meets in the forest, swings through the jungle Tarzan style and catches up to the two trucks just in time to save his parents from being run off a cliff. I don't even have words right now. Actually, it's lie. I have three words. Fuck you, Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny part is I remember being really upset at this when yeah. I saw it in theater. Yeah. Yeah. It was less egregious watching it again than it was the first time. It wasn't good. The fact that he travels a very long distance by swinging faster than two trucks driving at like top speed. He takes a different route. He routes differently and comes flying out of the forest. It's kind of like the way that uh, in our Ten to Midnight episode, uh, our 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 hero at the end there somehow gets there to save the day despite he can't run and he's an old old. 80-year-old. It kind of felt like that to me in this scene, too. Um, it's it's pretty bonkers, uh, but it wasn't as bad as I remembered, I guess is what I would say. Well, I did say it's only the third most degree, just an unbelievable part of this movie. Uh, so much saves the Jones party, and although they crash the truck and have the second truck basically land on top of them. But of course, no one's hurt because, uh, you know, fucking yeah, no they, one gets hurt. They should have all died when that other truck landed on yep. top of theirs. I don't understand how all of them were unscathed. They crash into what seems like a weird opening in oh, yeah. the jungle, I mean, yeah. and you're kind of like, what the fuck, why isn't there trees and stuff here, and then we find out really quickly. Yeah, so inexplicably no one is hurt Yeah, but that's going to change in a second when the CGI murder ants show up, although they are nice enough to only eat the bad guys. So with that out of the way, we're off to Akatar. Well, after Marion intentionally drives their truck off a cliff and onto a perfectly placed tree that drops them into a river, then down a waterfall, then down another waterfall, and then down a third waterfall, all of which should have absolutely killed them. Second most egregious and unbelievable thing in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, so these murder ants, when I saw it the first time, I remember them being, like, ginormous. Like, in my mind, they were the size of, like a monster movie ant, and when I watched it again, I was like, oh, that's kind of plausible. Like, it didn't seem that brutal. The fact that they were scared of the skull, and the skull is what protected Indy and his friends, was kind of bullshit to me. Most of the Russians get eaten here, but Blanchette survives, and her and a few other goons are going to try to get down these waterfalls. The waterfall travel is very problematic, particularly the third one it's a waterfall that is, it almost looks like Niagara Falls. Yeah, you see the rocks underneath that and they directly you, would have landed on. And at least in the third one, they all dump out of it and end up in the water yeah. rather than surviving, like being in the aquatic truck. Their they're third straight waterfall. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. That's right. <laughs> but they get down the third waterfall and they all kind of emerge up onto the beach, but... When they spin around, they get a view of Skull Rock. Yes, they made it to Akatar, and Indy volunteers to return the skull himself. I have to return it. Why you? Because it told me to. But they all go inside the city anyway, where they find paintings showing 13 aliens, visitors from a past long forgotten. But you know who hasn't forgotten about it? The ancient tribe of Mesoamericans who still live within the city's walls. They attack Jones and company at first, but when Dr. Ox pulls out the crystal skull, they back right off. And that won't be the last time that grizzled old hobo saves the day. He also figures out how to gain entry to the magical temple. Much like everything else in this movie, it is totally realistic. (laughs) This is where I am kind of enjoying the Oxley character. I'm like, is he becoming the prophetic old man? I'm searching for that yeah, and yeah he's I starting know. to become yeah. the prophetic old man and I'm like all right sweet I'm glad that that's making an appearance it always makes my enjoyment a little bit better they start working their way through that temple, like you said. They do run afoul of that tribe, but luckily the skull scares them away, and they find what seems to be a bit of an obelisk. This is where Oxley had gotten to before, but kind of got stuck. He wasn't able to bring it back and get any further. How do they solve this sort of puzzle or problem? Well, this is where I got the most National Treasure 2 vibes for sure, this particular scene. Uh, basically, there's all these heads sticking out the side of it, and if you like smash them off, sand will pour out. And when that sand pours out, I guess that was some kind of a weight that was holding these things down. But once the sand leaves, these four giant stone pillars come up against gravity and form into a smooth tower that can slide down into this thing or sand falls at the bottom or something. I don't know. It's absurd. It was a very complicated door opening, but basically it opens the pathway and door into what is the sort of lost city. They, unfortunately, are standing in the sort of sand that gives way as this starts happening, and they kind of tumble down. They fall into some water, um, but figure out, once they're in that water, how to sort of remove it. But it creates almost like a, a disappearing staircase. Yeah, this part was actually kind of cool, I'll admit. They have to scramble down this shrinking series of stairs that are, like, pulling back into the wall. So that if they don't get there fast enough, they're going to fall underneath a bunch of spikes and dead bodies and stuff. Uh, But they do, of course, survive, all of them, and they eventually end up in a giant trophy room. This room features artifacts from basically every period in human history up to the point when this temple was abandoned, which leads Indy to surmise that the aliens were collectors, or perhaps even archaeologists. It also contains two giant red doors, which, when opened, will miraculously lead to the end of this movie. Yeah, this room is interesting, and that whole idea that maybe these aliens were here to, like, collect information. I'm actually getting massive Predator vibes when this kind of section's going. And Stop I wanted trying to, to draw me into this movie. Well, and I wanted You're to not know your draw me on me that. That's, no. Well, I know how you feel about Predator, and I didn't think that this felt that different from that concept. If anything, this would be Predator 2 vibes when they find the fucking trophy room on that ship, Danny yes. Glover. Well, yeah, it yeah. does remind me of that Predator 2. That's term. not selling me on this. No. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They enter those two red doors and emerge in a throne room, one containing 13 thrones, each with a different alien skeleton on it. Turns out the skull that Dr. Oxley found is the final skull, one that will restore the alien hive mind to existence. We learn this from Kate Blanchett, who appears shortly after Indy's old friend betrays him again, having inexplicably made her way through the temple along with some of her Russian goons. Now, how did they get down there? Yeah, that's what I don't understand. Um, they the show, stairs were gone. I know. They show them gunning down the, like, indigenous tribe that was there and then working their way through, I guess, That Mac character's been dropping little beacons the entire time, letting them know where they are. They could have tied a rope to one of those pillars and made their way down there. But they've caught up to them now. And Cate Blanchett wants this skull. She wants the ultimate prize for returning it back to where it belongs. Oh, yeah. So she grabs the skull and holds it up to the headless skeleton, where it floats up to rejoin its body. And with that, all 13 skulls come alive, and Dr. Oxley begins speaking Mayan. He's relaying a message from the aliens. They're grateful for the return of the final skull, and they offer to give them a gift, a big gift. Cate Blanchett pushes everyone else out of the way to cash in, and she tells the aliens she wants to know everything they do. She wants to know everything. Hey, remember when Indy told her to be careful what she wished for earlier in a totally organic way that didn't scream, this will definitely pay off at the end of this movie? Well, get ready because we've reached that point. (laughs) I mean, this is classic hubris though, right? This is someone thinking they can control the reception of infinite information. And we know this isn't going to go well. How much of this ending feels similar to the ending of the first movie? Oh my God, dude, they totally just walk it back. This is just a complete rehash of that because as the temple is falling apart, the aliens are shooting all of their knowledge into her brain. Now, I said aliens, but maybe it's actually just alien because the skeletons all merge into one being, which, by the way, looks like shit. But either way, this literally blows her mind and her head essentially melts. Yeah, it's just the end of Raiders, only she's the ethnically ambiguous guy and the alien is the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, it does really feel that way for sure. She's asked for too much knowledge and it does end up like incinerating her. She almost turns into particles and disappears It turns out that these aliens don't come from another planet, though. It seems like they're interdimensional. I mean, that's what insane old Dr. Oxley says, but I couldn't really piece that together myself. I had kind of checked out at this point. Oh, so he... Uh, <laughs> so I guess, well, once the skull is returned, though, he kind of comes back to himself. He has clarity again, and he's able to communicate in his regular way. He has figured out that these aren't from another planet, but they're able to travel between dimensions, and that's kind of where they're going to head back to. The temple starts falling apart rapidly here, right? There, There's a spinning motion... And pieces of the temple are flying away. Uh, Indy and his friends sort of dive out of that main room while Blanchette is getting all of that knowledge and before she's incinerated. And they make it back to that treasure room. They do, and from there, uh, his friend who betrayed him starts gathering up treasure because, of course, he's just in it for the greed, and he tells him to walk away, but he won't, which that reminds me of the third movie when that uh, hot German lady won't let go of the Holy Grail. He tells him to let it go and to climb up, and he's like, don't worry, I've got this, I'm fine, but he gets sucked into some like alien portal along with all the Russian soldiers. So at this point, the bad guys are all dead. The good guys all escape the temple. And the only thing left to do is watch that temple transform into a flying saucer and take off. And if you haven't seen this movie, I'm actually not joking. I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Where did they go? Space? Not into space. Into the space between spaces. What the fuck does that even mean? That's what you are saying, right? About yeah, the interdimensional they're in a different thing? dimension. I actually, so... I'm pretty conflicted about this last section or scene. They're on top of a mountain and they're watching this temple get disintegrated and destroyed. And it is actually quite a cool, large visual effect. The actual spaceship spinning and disappearing into another plane, is not great like that actual effect kind of sucks but i do like the visual of the, the, temple rocks the, air, the rocks crumbling the rocks and then all of the water pouring in and creating that space i actually think it is quite well done And I like the slide of it. If it didn't have that alien spaceship creating it, it would have obviously been a little bit better. Well, because the alien spaceship is kind of like low budget, actually. It's literally just like a flying saucer. It's kind of like one of the things from like Mars attacks. It's not visually impressive. It isn't some like futuristic, whatever. It's a fucking flying saucer like you would see in like old fucking cartoons about aliens from the 1950s. Maybe he's trying to make it like the right time period. That's the only thing I can say. I think they are trying to make us think of those and to say that... The reason why we don't see them that frequently in the sky is they're not actually a part of our galaxy. They are interdimensional and have come across and... Are now getting to go back with sort of their knowledge. They're also suggesting that they played an important role in like changing the technology of ancient peoples, right? As they move forward. And that's not a new theory or concept. That's been thrown out there a lot. No, that part would actually fit what you're saying earlier about a connection to like a reasonable connection to the Indiana Jones universe. Yeah. But all the other shit, I don't know, man. This is all so bizarre and insane and confusing. But in the end, Indiana Jones is there to answer all of our questions. I don't understand. The this legend of a city of gold. The Uga word for gold translates as treasure. But their treasure wasn't gold, it was knowledge. Knowledge was their treasure. God damn it. Like, come on man, they're just fucking spelling this out for us. Uh. I, I, I kinda smiled. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's he's being his teacher self throughout this, right? He drops lines about being a teacher throughout. And that's the part of Indy that I find most appealing is his, like, balance of, like, doing it for knowledge and understanding and then trying to protect that as part of it, right? Like, oh, Okay. But this this feels like them just trying to explain to the audience why this needed to take place in El Dorado. It's like them trying to like retroactively justify some of their choices by literally just spelling it out for us. And that's what I have a problem with. Yeah, you don't want to be treated like an idiot. No. Yeah. Now, you might be asking yourself, can we possibly manage to cram in any more heavy-handed sentiment before we hit the <laughs> credits? You bet we can. After all, we've got to wrap up the whole secret son slash lost love subplot. I can Who's coming with me? Come on. Why don't you stick around, junior? I don't know. Why didn't you, dad? Somewhere your grandpa is laughing. (laughs) Then Indy and Marion get fucking married. Yeah, we transition to finding out that he is now the associate dean of the university or college. So he's got his job back. In fact, he's got a promotion Then we're off quickly to the chapel where he is getting married. So that's all getting wrapped up nicely. His best man is his son. We have the doors of the chapel blow open and throw Indy's hat onto the ground towards Shia LaBeouf. This is where we're like, are they telling us he's the next Indiana? But... Right before Shia can pick it up, Indy grabs it. Oh, he does pick it up. He picks it up, dusts it off, and is about to put it on his head. That's right. And that's when his dad swoops in and reclaims it, leaving him to wonder what might have been as the credits roll. And based on everything I've read, he is definitely not in Dial of Destiny. So this is especially symbolic in hindsight. So close. So close for Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think clearly they wanted to have this continue based on the ending they're sharing. And they wanted to leave it open to continue with Shia. Do you think... So does some of his, like, relationship and personal problems led to him not being involved further in the franchise? I do. I think that's 100% why he's not in this one. There were there were issues with him on the set of that movie he got fired from, right? The fucking, um, the Olivia Wilde movie, Don't Worry, Darling. He was making, like, Florence Pugh feel unsafe, or I don't know. But, like, even back then, it's interesting that they didn't just hand it to him because that would have seemed to be the logical end point to all of this. Uh, but, no, retroactively, it does look kind of like... Well, you can't really give it to this guy, so they just don't do it. I mean, it's not okay that he is, like, I guess it's, like, sexual predatory stuff. Like, why is uh, he making people uncomfortable? I don't know. I mean, you know, if you're a fucking weirdo, you make people uncomfortable, right? It just kind of happens. I guess so, That's why yeah. Crispin Glover didn't come back for Back to the Future Part 2. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, man, so that's basically it now. We're in the credits, and uh, I think National Treasure 2 is better than this movie, so... I was kind of thinking that at various points, I was really thinking as they're trying to get the temple. So I need to make sure that my rating for this is uh, worse than that. Yeah. Did you go look up your rating for that one? Do you remember it offhand? No, but I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to bring it in for the landing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts before we go to our ratings? I mean, the only thing that I can think is that this movie is worse because of how much we enjoy or how much we appreciate the movie making of the first ones. Definitely, We have a lot of friends who are fans of the first three who have just outrageous anger while thinking about this movie. right? And, and I think it's interesting because if you reflect on or watch this movie without thinking about those three, it's not that bad. Uh, I may disagree with you there, <laughs> but I think you've made a very valid point, which is, yes, obviously my viewing of and love for the first three does color my opinion of this. However, that good point will not change my rating. I stand by what we're about to get into, so why don't we get into it now? The way we always do this, the way we've been doing it for 100 episodes is we rate the movie two times on a scale of one to 10. One to 10 for how bad it is, one to 10 for how enjoyable, and the goal is to find movies that are a 10 out of 10 on both scales, or what we call the Crit Crit 20. 20, 20, 20. Taking into account how much this deviates from the original movies, and even considering what you've said, if you're gonna view it as a separate entity, Why include so much fan service? You can't have it both ways. You can't put it all the fan service thing, but then be like, please don't judge this compared to the first three. It's impossible. There are at least three completely unbelievable parts to this in what had previously been a reasonably believable franchise. I completely blame this on CGI. If the technology for CGI hadn't been invented, all of the absurd parts of this wouldn't have been possible, and the movie would have had to have been grounded in some semblance of realism. Also, while we're talking about this, I'm just going to say this, Steven Spielberg, stop listening to George Lucas, okay? (laughs) All that guy does is murder beloved franchises, and you let him murder this one too. Uh, Putting aside the completely impossible aspects of this, everything about the plot is so ham-fisted. They telegraph everything that's going to happen a mile away, and none of it lands. Harrison Ford is kind of doing, in my mind, like an exaggerated version of Indiana Jones. The jokes are a little more jokey, you know what I mean? Shia LaBeouf brought nothing to this for me. Uh, his friend who betrays him, we have nothing invested in this fucking guy. The only reason he's in the movie is to betray Dr. Jones. He does nothing but betray him, leave, show up again, tell him he's uh, actually on his side, then betray him again, then fucking die. That character didn't need to be in this at all. Brought nothing to it. Kate Blanchett's thing is fucking weird. I don't know. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you about because when she was when she first hit the screen, I was just like, Kate Blanchett in yeah. this role? I was kind of weirded out. I kind of got used to it throughout though. Like she she doesn't she holds that strange character well enough that it it is not offensive to me in the end i guess is what i'd say like okay it, it pulls it off enough that you're like okay that was fine yeah she's a good actress but like the the character just is so odd to me and her playing it is odd that was so. that was it more that was weird for me was her playing that character was strange yeah. but she she managed to maintain it for me through okay can we talk about the never-ending ending, ending? On a scale of one to Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, i get give this about Nate.
1: <laughs> Did we really need the wedding or the university scene oh. showing the
0: city guy's job back? He just found out aliens are fucking real as if return to his former professor job is a high priority. Yeah, return to the king has to set the uh I don't know, the highest bar ever for yeah, fake yeah. endings. This does feel similar to that. I don't I don't think an eight is, is appropriate. I think we're closer to a five on that one, but at least they wrap this up in like three minutes. I guess, ultimately, I don't understand how this can be so fanservice-y while at the same time making the whole plot about aliens, which is kind of the least fanservice-y thing you could do. This movie is 10 out of 10 bad. It's a piece of shit, and it craps all over the franchise. It's awful. It's a fucking CG fest. 10 out of 10. What do you think? I think the last sentence you said there is really the crux of why you dislike this movie. I think you throwing out that it is a CG fest demonstrates your feelings about CG versus sort of actual um, visual effects, right? Like this is – your preference would strongly be to have real visual effects over CG. Always. Yeah. and Ground it in reality. Put it in a world that I can believe exists. And that's fair. Um, I do think there was too much CG. I think that's a a nature of the time. I also think that the interdimensional aliens – is probably too far, right? Like, that as a sort of source, but I actually don't think that it is completely outside the realm of stuff that would fit within the Indiana Jones world, and I don't think that the way they presented it is completely unbelievable. We've seen lots of movies that use that kind of stuff as an explanation, and I think that... Looking at Predator, looking at Extraterrestrial, looking at all kinds of movies. Sorry, right, Extraterrestrial, ET. E-T yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> who calls that movie Extraterrestrial? <laughs> That's what it's called. It's ET the Extraterrestrial. Uh, yeah. Well, right, looking, I mean, there's. I think part of it is uh, maybe Spielberg going back into that realm again, wanting to explore and and include that. Then make an alien movie. Don't make an Indiana Jones movie. Make a movie about fucking aliens. Yeah. Well, but why? I I actually don't. But why? Because you want to make an alien movie, but. There's lots of people who have shared stories, fiction, that explain some of our ancient past with aliens, and I think that that is plausible. I think the CG of them, like, blowing up and going out of that thing is is probably a challenge. It certainly wasn't nearly as bad as I remembered when I left the theater. Watching it again today did not give me those same feelings. The ants... Uh, weren't as egregious as I had remembered. The swinging through the trees was was not good. Yeah, And the falling down the waterfalls was too much. How about the fridge? How was the fridge for you? Most egregious. Yeah, He would have been melted for sure. But the speed, the throwbacks to the other movie, the nostalgia, the sound, the music, John Williams again still doing this one and bringing all of that back. And you know how much that fits into the way that I enjoy this movie? Just quit stalling. Just give us your number. I only think that this is a seven bad. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I would oh. not put this in the 10 contention. I think that so much of the bad rating for people of this is one, the CG in the 2000s, George Lucas, and two, them wanting more out of a like payoff for the other three movies. Or just not wanting the movie at all. Well, that's I didn't it too. the movie at that's all. That's it, true. Yeah. There's a lot of people who were like, why would you add to something that was a really great trilogy? And, and that I could see being egregious, right? They were just looking for more money. But I I only have this as a seven. In terms of enjoyability, I'm we're going to transition there. Yeah. yeah, I'm almost scared to ask. Um, it was pretty breezy. I went through pretty quick. I wasn't hurting on the speed. It was fairly nostalgic. I kind of like Shia LaBeouf. Um, you know what? I do too. That's the one thing where I'm like, I, I kind of wish he had not gone off the deep end because i think he's a pretty good actor i think it would have been fine i think it would have been fine in future stuff if they were to carry it on um he's got a charisma he definitely does Yeah. yeah um and i and the interplay between him and harrison ford was good harrison i like was playing on his age a little bit right joking around about that and we had all the same kind of humor and quip the sound music and editing were all good i had this as a seven enjoyable Good Lord, man. I went seven and seven. This was not the worst experience for me. I don't even know. I don't even know how you can sit there fucking grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> saying this is a seven enjoyable movie. This movie blows ass. I hate that it exists. I hate Steven Spielberg for making it. And I especially hate that I've now seen it twice. And I will not watch it again. And I kind of hate they're making another one. Oh, we can de-age him now. We have better CG technology. He's fucking 80. You're going to need to. You're going to need to de-age. He was 80 years old. Here's an idea, Hollywood. Leave these beloved franchises alone and make something that's actually new, like original. Please. Please do that. (laughs) Um, I love that you're an old man shaking your fist at the kids walking across your lawn. It feels pretty awesome. Old man yells at Cloud. That's me right now. I do agree that uh, it would be better to put more money into original ideas. Going back to just what is going to make money at the expense of that franchise is frustrating. That being said, I will definitely watch the next one. I don't know if I will. I don't want to. Based on this, although I, I asked myself, can it be worse than this? Like, they must realize this was bad, and they have to be course-correcting a little, right? I but he's ass- 80 years old. <laughs> I assume they will use less, like, broad CG across the board. They're going to have to use a lot of it to de him, yeah. yeah, which is interesting. But I'm hoping that the actual um sort of stunts and actual events in the movie use less of the cg format but i guess we'll we'll yeah. find out if we watch it he's fucking 80 hey you have no problem with them trotting out charles bronson. charles bronson is the fucking he's his persona is timeless that's why all right he's an ageless i don't know you don't feel like no. harrison ford fits that okay here's my conspiracy theory for this movie do you want to hear it yeah i do what's the worst of the original trilogy what's the worst one the second one everyone says that temple of doom you yeah. know whose wife is in the second one Steven Spielberg's wife. Oh. I think he made this to get her as not the worst movie anymore. <laughs> that's <a theory>. He's <laughs> that's doing his wife a favor. Either? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like, hey, Kid Capshaw, I'm going to help you out. We're going to lay a real fucking steaming turd. And everyone will say that that's the worst one. And they'll ignore you from now on. So now, number two uh, sort of escapes yeah. as. Uh, that's my conspiracy theory. What a piece of shit this is. I hate your ratings, awful. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so glad that it upsets you so much. I think it is going to like make a lot of people, including many of our friends, upset. Yeah. Which, I think it's great. I'm happy about. Give me that. a call. DM me, everybody. I'll, I'll. We can talk this out. Everyone, what, feels... we'll have an intervention. What's wrong with Noel? What's <laughs> of this beer? Uh, I liked it. It was uh, very easy to drink. Slightly sweet. Um, kind of a good morning beer, to be honest. Yeah. We're we're drinking this in the morning, and and I enjoyed it. Um, I would love to see some other styles by our Sleeping Giant Brewing Company, too. I'd be excited to try some of those. I, I don't know when I'm ever going to get to Thunder Bay, but if I do, I would definitely try to to visit the brewery. It sounds like a pretty cool space. Sure, yeah. I thought it was a very good, like very traditional stout, um, very malty, which I enjoy. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised you enjoyed it as much as you did. I guess that's the theme for today's episode, is you uh, enjoying things more than one <laughs> might expect, but, you know. <laughs> No, yeah, I it was very tasty. I, too, will mm. check out some more Sleeping Giant stuff and uh this is going to bring us to the end of our third season we're about to take a couple months off to kind of recharge and uh go looking for some beers and looking for some movies but keep checking in on our social media at the bmb podcast on twitter and instagram we'll be posting some clips highlights uh you know moments uh there will probably be a bonus episode at some point point. and uh you know we'll be back uh, in the fall with more yes thank you for listening this season if you want to send some feedback, let Cooper know that this movie is way better than all those people think it is. You know, I, I actually think I'm not going to get very much support on my, my conversation here. I got a, a lot of support <laughs> on Tank Girl. You were a little bit harsh on you that one. You did get a lot of support um, on Tank Girl. Which and is I am... great. I don't expect to get a lot of support on my position on this one, which is fair. Yeah. Uh, feel free to email the Podcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. You can also get some requests in for season four. We've already got a couple that we're working on, but if you have any ideas, something you'd like us to review, let us know. And like I said, check back in we hope to uh see you back here again in the fall and until then thanks so much for joining us for 100 episodes i'm cooper and i'm nolan and we'll see you next time on bad movies and beer knowledge was the treasure (laughs) (laughs) the adventure continues